Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaclupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Hi, everyone. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I'm Roger Zaclupe. Today, we have a really special opportunity because we have an interview from Dr. Michael J. Consuelos, who is a physician, also an Army veteran, and has worked in a variety of health and mental health care settings. And he is going to be offering some fantastic insight into how we are responding as a nonprofit and social sector to this pandemic and thinking a lot about family and child mental health. We begin this interview thinking about some of those broad questions about how this collective trauma of social distancing and a pandemic are impacting families and children, and then also taking a step back to think about how we respond to that with respect to systems. So I am so excited to uh, bring Michael on to the podcast today. Also, this is a bit unique because we generally um, do our episodes with two interviews together um, over a two-week span, but we decided that the information in this was just so good and was um, so time relevant that we wanted to release it to you as soon as we could. So we are actually going to release this in an off week as a solo episode. Right, Drew, I am equally excited about this episode. And the interview that we had with Michael was eye-opening, and it was also very insightful and had a lot of deep meaning to it. And he was able to share with us um, information about child and family mental wellness, community mental wellness, how businesses and nonprofits can move forward uh, in light of this pandemic, uh, but then also how we as a society uh, can move forward. What type of infrastructure can we create now, knowing some of the things that we know now due to this pandemic? Uh, he also mentioned in the, in the interview that he was able to work through uh, the H1N1 pandemic. And uh, it was really interesting, some of the information that he was able to offer and how it connects to where we are right now. Absolutely. And as I think about this, you know, we're all experiencing this collective trauma, really, um, with this pandemic and the social distancing and the economic challenges that come with it. It's affecting us as practitioners. It's affecting the people we work with in the nonprofit and social sector, it affects our families and our kids and all of these people who are impacted by this pandemic, recognizing the way that it affects us. I think that he mentions in their interview, it's kind of like this same trauma that has no definitive endpoint. And that, that makes it so much harder in a way to really make sense of it and how our lives have been uprooted and changed by it. And how we connect with each other is really important. You know, right now, Social distancing is is the norm. Uh, we want to make sure that we flatten the curve. We want to make sure that we keep others and ourselves healthy and safe. We worry about our families. We worry about ourselves as well. We worry about the communities that we serve. And, and it's really important right now more than ever to also keep in mind our 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 well-being and and how to practice self-care. And I know we we talked a little bit about that during the interview with Michael. And again, he offered some incredible insight on how we can do that. I know he had mentioned his role as one of the many roles that he taught, we talked about as an executive coach and how he helps individuals at that management level really focus on helping the, their workers, you know, the, the individuals that are working um, for them in, in these different sectors. And I think that you'll find that there's lots of insight here into how we can think about growing through this. You know, what does it look like for an organization to respond to this challenge in a way 
that sees opportunities in the challenges and maybe sees opportunities for growth where it might have been seen really difficult to do previously. Yeah, and so for those of you who are listening, if you want to be able to access more information from this episode, you can go to our show notes at www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. And there you'll be able to access um, some articles and resources that we are going to post that accompany this episode. And for any other future episode, you can always go to those show notes. There's some really great information, files for all of our speakers, as well as resources that they um, have shared with us to share with you. So let's get started with our interview with Dr. Michael J. Consuelos. This pandemic is having an effect on all of us, but in particular children. Access to things such as play, food, social interaction, sports, and education is something that we need to keep in mind. This in turn impacts health and mental wellness, especially when we think about child development and relationships. To talk, to talk about how this pandemic impacts the health and mental wellness of children, we've invited Dr. Michael J. Consuelos. Michael is a senior medical advisor at Neuroflow, a digital health technology and analytics company promoting behavioral health access and engagement in all care settings. He advises the company on matters spanning healthcare policy, clinical guidelines, and health systems integration. He is also the principal at MJC Solutions, a veteran-owned small business that provides professional consulting and advisory services to organizations serving the healthcare sector. Michael, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. So to kick, kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. I'm a general pediatrician by training, and uh, I've been lucky enough to have a quite interesting uh, job path, career path, I guess you would say. And so I, I've always been interested in uh, not just practicing medicine, but how is medicine delivered uh, to the patients, uh, the the business uh, behind the, the the medicine that's delivered, and uh, and those things that in the community themselves affect the way that that folks are able to receive care. So access to care, uh, populate what you know people call now population health. Back in the '90s, we were doing a lot of that work. Now it's just much more in the sort of general you know zeitgeist of folks in, in healthcare. So I've always been interested in that space and have I probably raised my hand one too many times and got put into a lot of interesting leadership positions and including in the army. So I was in the army for for six years. I was lucky enough to be at the Walter Reed. Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and then at Fort Knox, and then left there and, and uh, joined uh, a large clinically integrated delivery system in Pennsylvania for about 13 years. And then from there, I thought I wanted to do some health policy work, health economics, and some quality work. And then I spent five years at the Hospital and Health System Association of Pennsylvania. And so, so it's been a kind of a tur sort of a Lots of different curves in my career, but it's followed my interests and, and really behavioral health, behavioral health issues have been something that I've always been interested in, not just about because I'm a pediatrician and we see that as an issue in kids as they through different parts of their development, but also in healthcare policy and healthcare economics and other areas of how healthcare is delivered. It tends to be something that's not talked about frequently enough and is really overlooked and at the same time is really a reason why some things in healthcare don't quite work out as we thought we would because there was a lot of comorbid conditions. So, so people who have common diseases that folks think about diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and cancer and all the things that people get taken care of, a lot of them have another condition that's, that is the basis of their behavioral health problems that then affects their care. So 
long explanation, but it's been an interesting career. Two things that I that I really appreciate you just mentioned, uh, Michael, is access and looking at um, health and mental wellness sort of from an uh, integrative approach. And so, access to care is something that we um, we don't. I don't know if people really think a lot about how access to care is delivered. Um, there's access and there's information, and and sometimes particularly when you're talking about vulnerable communities, that is something that is missed. And then the, the second piece is the health and mental wellness, um, how there's this integrative approach to, to, to health, how you connected the two. So yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, you know, so in, in sort of classical medical training, we spend 90, 95% of our training on the physical side of health, all the things that affect health on the physical side. And spend really not enough time on the behavioral health issues that also impact health. So it's, it really is really underscore, you know, there's, there's enough, enough emphasis on that really in the classical training. I think now in medical school and residencies and other training programs, that has been a, a change afoot. And hopefully we're starting to see some changes. But as I worked in health policy, one of the things that continued to battle was that access to care and the co-location and integration of services where you have physical health in one part of the house and then a huge wall and then maybe sometimes a door that then leads to the behavioral health side of the house. And those two sides don't always talk to each other. There's things like super protected data, right? So how information flows through from one provider on the physical health side to the mental health, behavioral health side. There's issues around just access to to funding for those services. Those are in two different parts of the house. In fact, they're not even the same house. So in some states, those are very separated, right? So there's kind of a, there's a carve out for, for mental health, behavioral health services, whereas some states they allow some carve in so that organizations that provide uh, insurance on the physical health side also provide insurance and, and benefits on the mental health side. But some of those, but in many states, that's not the, that's the case, as, as you may know. So there's this constant separation and then the stigma that is attached to that obviously creates more and more issues. So, so you can see, I talk about this quite a bit, but. No, we love it too. And I, I think that there's also, you know, you talk about the difference that, and sometimes the bifurcation in health between the physical health and the mental and behavioral health side. But you also bring, I think, a really unique perspective in being able to, have been somebody who's been involved in direct medical practice as a physician, but also somebody who really understands healthcare systems together. And in social work, we like to talk about that distinction between direct practice and macro practice. And we'll talk about kind of both of those today. I'm curious to start at the beginning about talking a little bit about how this pandemic that we're all experiencing is affecting children, particularly on their mental health, and then later on focusing on the systems pieces. But first, what makes COVID-19 unique? in comparison to some of the right. other pandemics that have occurred and particularly the way yeah, that it yeah. affects families and children. So I guess one thing uh, I didn't mention in my sort of very long intro to myself was that I actually have pandemic experience. So I've had the, the sort of fortunate uh, career path to allow me to, to work with health systems and across the state around pandemic, pandemic preparation, specifically you know, emergency preparedness, but also business continuity. So I'm sort of a student of this. And actually during H1N1, back in 2009, I was you know, ear deep and all that. But so, so what you, back to your question around the differences in COVID-19. So I, I think one of the things that is different than other pandemics in the past, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of comparison to the Spanish flu that occurred about a hundred years ago. 
And I think if you look at that, some of those things are, are strikingly different. So first of all, we're, this is a mod, what I would consider a modern pandemic, right? So it's, it's in the here and now where we have to manage travel. So global travel, uh, the media and the politics are all that are associated with it. So then you get this barrage back to the, to the behavioral health, mental health part. You get this barrage of this constant flow of news and updates of people dying. And so I remember this is just um, six weeks ago. It's not quite eight weeks ago when Italy was first having uh, lots of deaths, right? So they start going from 300 to 400 to 500 to 600 deaths. And you say that now today without really hesitating, but imagine an airline, a jumbo jet airliner that has 300 to 400 passengers in it. So Italy was basically having two or three of those drop out of the sky every day. So imagine what that is like for a country to see that happen, right? Now, fast forward to just a few weeks ago, New York City was having that, just, just or New York State was having that within one state. And we we're now seeing 1,500, 1,800, 2,000, almost 3,000 deaths in a day. That constant, persistent impact of that suffering and the impact to the families, uh, the media that's in the politics, everything that's going around that is constantly in our, um, awareness as parents, uh, you know, as children have that. I think it's very, very different than maybe an event such as maybe a uh, hundred years ago when maybe all this was not happening right before us. Maybe we were seeing signs of it, but it's really there in front of us. The other thing that's important is that it's constant and you can't escape it. So back to 9-11. So the last time we, I think we, had a sort of a, a sh uh, kind of a, a shake to our systems. That was a one day event. Yes, thousands of people uh, suffered in, in the Twin Towers, but it was one specific event. But right now we're having that every day and there's really no escape from it. So, and then the frontline workers and the essential workers, the folks not just in hospitals, but are working in grocery stores, delivery services, other areas that are very essential for us to continue society, those people are put in harm's way, right? So you have this death. You have this constant reminder of death. And then you have people potentially in your family or yourself that is facing physical harm in your day-to-day -day life. Now, if you aren't in that area, the other side of that is that there is, you know, we have high rates of, of unemployment, right? So we're in the 30 million plus people of, that are unemployed at this point in time at the airing of this of this uh, recording of this podcast. So it, it, so if you're, if you're someone in your family is an essential worker, it's one in one in three, one in four chance, maybe one in five chance that they've lost their job or furloughed. So now you have that financial impact. So, you, so gentlemen, if you start adding all those things up as a family, as a structure, as a as a I mean, family structure, and also kids within that, but us as adults, there's this constant um, stress and trauma. Right. Yeah. Our communities, uh, individuals, families, children, um, we're all facing incredible um, stress and, and job losses as well. Um, there's a lot of worry. There's a lot of anxiety, um, not only as adults, but, you know, with children, um, they're definitely being exposed now more than ever uh, to a lot of information, whether it's it's the news or the media or um, social media, you know, technology. We you know, we have access to so many things and that's definitely causing uh, a lot of stress on 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 all levels, right? So, for those served by human and health service organizations, what are the potential hidden mental health consequences that we have not thought about yet? Yeah, you know, it's it's the it's you know, I think it's that's 
back to what we were saying before and that you mentioned also is that 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 stress and that trauma and that sort of silent suffering you know i think that there is it's important to to recognize that and that there's very little escape from it right i don't, I don't think anyone's walking through this time right now and going this is you know okay there there's kids you know there aren't normal structures that would provide some sort of change and diversion such as schools uh sporting events other things that are in our daily lives that human experience is gone. So there's, there's a lot of grieving uh, and sense of loss of normalcy. And, you know, it's a difficult question you're asking, but I think all those things line up to, uh, the possibilities of continued increasing anxiety, stress, uh, obviously depression. And, and the question is, how is that being captured and how is that being managed? And I, and, and we're doing that in isolation. So th there's also the, the point of the social isolation piece, right? In that clearly there's been lots of studies in, in the elderly where they're socially isolated. There's many studies that showing the impact of their health and, and longevity. If they're socially isolated, we're having a, a sort of a national or global social isolation event. Right. It's almost like there's this uh, post-traumatic stress effect that children are experiencing now, because like you mentioned earlier, um, a little bit ago, be, not being able to go to school for some children, that social interaction is is something that they look forward to on a daily basis. For other children, it was the opportunity to eat eat a meal or two, and and then right. you know there's the the sports. So there's there's a loss of connectivity. Um, as as human beings, we have this social connectivity about us. We enjoy sort of being around situations. Some people more than others, but that's um we're, we're we're grieving that right now. There's this loss. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't, you know, so I, so I, you know, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about, about behavioral health, mental health issues. And you mentioned in my, in the, in the intro that I, that I help a company named Neuroflow. And one of the reasons I, I'm working with them is because of what they do. And I think just reflecting on how they approach the problem, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. So, so what Neuroflow does and the reason I've really started working with them is because they monitor, they use a, an app, an app, and there are many apps out there, but they monitor things, uh, evidence-based screening within uh, individuals who have the application. So one thing that's missing is we don't have readily available tools that really almost anyone can use to go ahead and self-assess their depression symptoms, their anxiety symptoms. And there's, there's evidence-based screening tools that are, that are just really they're free. They're, they're, they're completely, you know, available that can be downloaded. And then the next thing is, you know, to monitor those things. So what Neuroflow does is actually you, one of the things that I recommend for people to do as they're going through stress is actually journal and talk about it and those kind of things. And, and so what Neuroflow does is actually takes national, takes natural language processing. And so if you're journaling things that are little red flags about your life right now that, that, that are, that have been shown to be higher risk for depression or anxiety, uh, that already sets an alert, alert off to you. Right. And then it also, they, they, the, the app also helps you manage yourself. So it gives you evidence based, uh, tools, little YouTube videos and other kind of videos that you can actually do sort of self-awareness. So what, what that leads to is, and I think is important in this conversation is to provide resilience within the community, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to have an ability for folks in the community to, to monitor themselves, to realize, Hey, I'm having a rough time to, whether it's through a journal or the PHQ or a GAD, you know, it's other types of, of standard uh, screening uh, that gives you like a little score and it says, Hey, you know what? You scored kind of high on this. 
how about we, how about you do this for yourself? Right. Cause there isn't enough providers, whether it be clinical social workers, other behavioral specialists, psychiatrists, psychologists, there aren't enough. And we're probably not going to make it enough. There just isn't enough, you know, workforce there to provide the care for all these individuals in, in, in our society at this point in time. So, so what do we need to do? We need to help provide resilience. We need to provide people some tools, right? So it's not quite the exact analogy, but if, if every patient or every person, right, who had diabetes, right, and they had for every time they needed to manage their diabetes, they had to go to the doctor, right? It, it would be really difficult. We just don't have enough diabetologists, endocrinologists, physicians to take care of those, right? So now what we have is glucose monitors that measure and monitor your glucose and you can adjust your glucose, your insulin doses, and there's different ways to do it. So they've, they've technology has been a force multiplier to allow people to manage their diabetes and actually have live more normal lives, right? There's, there are professional athletes who have diabetes that three or four decades ago, that would have been unheard of because it had to be managed with really with a blunt instrument of one to one conversations. Oh, your glucose is this, uh, your blood sugar is this. You should need to take this much. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't, that's not how your pancreas you know, responds, right? So I'm sorry, I'm joining on about this, but I think that, that the, my point to, to you and your audience is we're not going to have enough. Prov- I mean, it's great that we have providers who provide the service and it's great. There's that personal touch, but I'm just not sure that there's enough people to take care of the people and we need to have systems and technology to help be a force multiplier, but also can then connect back to the providers, right? So, so what is the screening test when you get that red flag? It's not just alerting the person about it, but then going back to that provider and saying, Hey, seems like you're whatever it is is getting a little worse. Let's bring you back a little bit sooner or whatever it is. Right. So sorry about, about going on that, but that's why I'm so passionate about technology as being a, as, as a good force to leverage in helping behavioral health. The, 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 is the sort of the tsunami that we're probably going to be seeing around depression and anxiety during post COVID. No, we appreciate your passion. And I read an article that that you were in and actually um your sister had connected me to the article that's how we you and i and, and drew were able to connect but yeah. um I, I think something important that you said in here is um how do we provide those tools not only to to kids but parents as well um not only right now during what's going on in this pandemic but even afterwards and you say on here and i quote that uh this is not an individual trauma it's a community one kids feel that too. It's likely that there will be some post-traumatic effects because it is a prolonged disruption in their daily lives and there is no end date on this. It's important for parents to be open to their kids' feelings without judgment and when it's over, to continuously be there. And I think that's important. And uh, it sounds like your work with Neuroflow is helping to create that different narrative. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. But So, so let me let me take maybe explain maybe explain that, that, that what you're saying is further is I think, and I didn't mention that earlier on, it's uh, what I tell people is like, okay, so if you need to hold your breath for 30 or 40 seconds, you can sort of know what that's like, right? And it sort of gets kind of painful towards the end. And then if I say, look, you got to hold your breath for about a minute, okay, okay that's going to be a little harder, but I can get it. But I know when that's going to end, right? We're going to be holding our breath for a very long time. We don't know what's going to, what, what is, when it's going to end. Right. And so just if I told you, I'm going to have you hold your breath, but I'm not going to tell you when to stop. That's very anxiety producing. And so what we're, what, yeah, so, right. Cause you don't, there's no end. So, so, and that's what families, and, you know, so in families are, I, they're not, maybe not be saying this, but they're feeling it that this, that every day it's sort of like they're, you know, kind of, 
tongue in cheek, it's Groundhog Day, like the movie, right? So every day is like the same. So that monotonous, continuous, there's no marking of time. We don't know when this is going to happen, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And that does increase its learned helplessness, right? I mean, what you're, what you're, what we're, what we're basically doing to ourselves is providing a great laboratory for learned helplessness. And it's important for us to provide some hope and provide some direction and provide, uh, assistance, like I said, without judgment. So it's also kids tend to be a little bit of a mirror to parents for better, or for worse, for the parents on this, right? So when you're, how many of us have heard our kids basically say the same things back to us that we've said to them? Right. Right. So they're clearly a mirror to us. But if we're stressed, right there, we reflect that to them and they reflect that to us. And so if we see their behaviors and anything else, it's, it's really the stress that's coming out and it's really, it's coming forward and say, look, you know, without judgment, it's not, you know, you said that, whatever it was, it seemed, you know, harmful or you're upset about that or you're upset. You just ask questions and be supportive without judgment because very likely they are stressed and they're probably picking up on the cues that you depending on how old they are, that you're stressed about the finances, about your, about the possibility of death in the family, all those things. So I hate to get, you know, kind of grim there, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's an impact. I mean, so one thing that's not in that article that, you know, I think is important to, to talk about is the, the impact of stress over long periods of time and actually how that changes your biology. And there's, there's, there's interesting evidence about um, moms that are stressed and their newborns, right? And the impact of the health of the newborn and the baby going forward and sort of this generational, continuous generational impact of stress, right? And so just think about how, what that's doing to our collective uh, human race um, about this continuing persistent uh, stress. I couldn't agree more, Michael. And I'm, I want to take us back to something you said earlier where you had described, you know, a tsunami that's kind of waiting. And I think that that's a really, that's an analogy struck me a lot because I've been thinking a lot about the different mental health factors or effects that are happening right now in people's lives yeah. and how it seems to kind of go undetected because we're all socially distancing, you know? Um, so, you know, as we slowly kind of enter back into a you know, semi-opened up world, whatever that looks like in every community, what should health and human service organizations yeah. be thinking about? So, when it comes so the other, to one of my other 55 hats that I wear is I'm an executive coach. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to play executive coach right now for a second is that is that for leaders in that space that they, they need to make sure they're taking care of themselves and their staff first. Okay. Let me explain that for a second. So, so, you know, it's important for us who provide physical health or, or behavioral health to go out and serve others. But I think in this time, it's also t important to recognize, and I want to emphasize that, that leaders should be recognizing that they, they themselves as leaders and their staff and support staff are impacted by the stress and trauma. And that you, you just can't normalize it just right off the bat. So, okay, well, you know, great. Now we can go out and help people, right? So, so I think all leaders need to make sure they're having conversations with their teams and find out how they're doing, what their level of stress is, uh, what, what are, you know, how do you, how do you interject some moments of gratitude and joy into that work? And so that you start off with a, with a workforce that is prepared and then, and be aware that they're experiencing stress. And so then from there, you move from, from that basic, I think, firm ground to the folks in the community and to realize that there is, 
again, stigma are attached to, I don't need to tell you guys that, you know, everyone sort of realizes that, but there's continued stigma around behavioral health, mental health issues and stress and, and depression. And I think one challenge is going to be is that people who have thought of themselves as normal, let's put that in quotations, and that they are in fact resilient and these kind of things don't affect them, that they're potentially the ones that are going to be uh, most at risk because they or may not have tapped into behavioral health or mental health uh, professionals or been aware, had that sort of self-reflection that there may be, there may be something there for them. And that now you have whole families who really have maybe not thought of themselves of having been touched by, by that psychological trauma or um, psychological issues, but now are. And that silence kills. Uh, and that silence also perpetuates the, 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 the stress and the, the suffering. So I, I'm, I know I'm not directly, I'm directly answering your question, but I think it's about being self-aware about how it's impacting yourself as a behavioral health uh, worker uh, and your team. Um, and then going out and looking for those who are, who are maybe in, in, in denial uh, of that or are seeing themselves as strong enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think, I think I, there's I a lot almost- to think about there. When you, when I hear you talk about that so passionately, I think about, um, the concept of self care, right? Or the concept, concept of make sure that you, you keep yourself yeah. level or maybe even, you know, above level in order to make sure you're providing, um, support for other individuals who rely, who rely on you. And, and I know you had mentioned this from an executive coach perspective, right? I'm like, wow, what doesn't Michael do? Um, are are you an executive chef as well? Are you what? What are the things that you do that we don't know about? But uh, yeah. but you know when you, when we um, when we've gotten <laughs> on a, on an airplane, right? And they say make sure that um if if in an emergency the uh, oxygen mask comes down, make sure that yeah. you put it on first before you start attending to other people. And there's a reason yeah. for that. So, yeah. but right now it's, we are in this sort of panic, anxiety, stressful mode that some folks are forgetting to put their oxygen mask on first and um, how much of an impact that is having on their health, but then also how they're communicating or even relating to other people. So I, I do appreciate um, that you had mentioned that because I, I, I think about it from a self-care perspective. Yeah, no. So yeah, so slam dunk there. Absolutely. So a colleague of mine and, and someone I looked up, up to quite a while, maybe in the show notes, you can lead to her blog, but Gretchen Schmelzer is a uh, therapist and executive coach who works at Telios Leadership Institute. And she wrote a blog back at the beginning of May around supporting resiliency in healthcare workers and their loved ones and healthcare leaders. And and, and again, I'll, I'll share that with you. And you guys can post that on your website or your, your show notes. But she goes through this much more eloquently than I do. And she is a trained uh, therapist around trauma and repeated trauma. And she's worked with communities uh, and actually, she might be interesting. Now I say about she may be interesting to have you guys as a as a, sure. as a uh, guest. But she's worked with communities and trauma. Yeah, and and so she's and I'll give you that that blog. But she, you know, she she says that all the time. When I've heard her speak or I'm in, in courses with her, she talks about about putting on that auction mask first. That it's important. But she also talks about building organizations where you don't need the auction mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So I think that's also important. So I, I totally get the analogy. But it's also important for us to build organizations where our folks aren't always grabbing for the auction mask, that they feel resilient enough or we've done things for them that there's always enough auction in the cabin. 
that she says that. And I think I'm th- totally stealing that from her, but it, it's it, to me, it makes me think about not just an emergency, pull the oxygen, but like all the time, provide enough oxygen. Right. For Don't folks wait for team. that moment where it's so dire that you have to go ahead and let the yeah. oxygen mask come down. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This is so, this is great. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Um, so as we segue um, here yeah. a little bit more into discussing organizations and, and, and agencies, um, where do you see opportunities for how health and human services organizations can change and adapt to the pandemic or even grow from it? You know, so I know that right now we're so hyper-focused yeah. on sort of a deficit-based perspective. Um, is there is there a, a positive-based mm-hmm. perspective on this? Yes, there is. I, I, I absolutely do. And I, and I'm a strong believer in, in creative destruction in that sometimes you have to tear, you have to tear things down in order to make them better or or new or different. And I I think there is a, there is a lot of opportunity. So, so I think that the telehealth, let's talk about telehealth really quickly here. And I think that's one, one, not really quickly, but let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So we've been, so I've been working on policy stuff around telehealth for, it seems like forever. It's not really forever, but it's five to 10 years. And it's been so slow moving because all the special interests around, well, the payers don't want this. And then, you know, licensure across state lines that, and there's a lot of barriers have been put up. And now all of a sudden COVID hits and everybody's like, oh, wait, listen, um, care at home is the safest way to take care of things. So now we're going to relax all the telehealth. Uh, you know, so they're actually the CMS was allowing people to use FaceTime and, and, you know, it's like whoever heard of that, right? With HIPAA, right? right? So wow, all that. And then tra- cross state licensure things got dropped. Now it may not oh, go when it's all said and done, it may not go, may not stay the way it is now, but I'm really hopeful that it's not going to go back the way it was pre COVID. So I do think technology, and telehealth and sort of this this ability to connect with your client, your patient, whoever you're taking care of in a in a new and a different way that doesn't require them to be in your office is important to to look for and start to think about how that goes in the forward. Because what that does, it allows you greater access to those individuals and vice versa. I, I think it probably helps with the stigma situation, right? So if, imagine if you're a professional in an executive suite. And you have to leave on a regular basis to see your therapist or to provide you know, some sort of interaction. But now you can do that in the comfort of your office or comfort of your home and get basically the same service uh, in the social services in this telehealth, the teleservices. Uh, it, it's now you've allowed them probably to access those services much more easily on their time schedule and such and so forth. Right. And then I, so I also uh, was the chair of, I mentioned things that Mike already done. So I was the chair of a board of a, of a large social services agency that served uh, at risk youth and homeless youth and also at, at risk families. And so we had social workers who would go to visit families in their homes, right? Which is important to see because you see what the home situation is and all the things that are going around with that child and that family, which is going to still be important in the future. But that, that person had that therapist, that social worker had to go, had to get in their car and drive from here to there to there, that, right? So there's a lot of dead time, lost time. So now think of a world where maybe you have, and I think here's the opportunity, a hybrid model whereby, yes, make those home visits because they are important to see how that family is uh, doing and the living situation and everything else that's happening there that's important, but maybe not every time, but maybe there'll be office hours where uh, the social worker can, can do a lot more visits because they can do it in their office, um, 
obviously there's bandwidth issues and computer access in those homes, all those kind of things. But I think we're moving towards that with, especially with the use of, of smartphones, right? So I think some hybrid version of what we're doing today to deliver services remotely can continue and is a great opportunity for us to provide more access. And I've already talked about already, you know, sort of things like Neuroflow or other applications that provide in real time screening and monitoring and, and lang uh, natural language processing for journaling that then feed up to uh, some sort of management, case management uh, platform that allows you to take care of a larger uh, group of, of folks, uh, I think it is important. I think lastly, I would say the fact that we're having these conversations is important. I think it's important that, that, that and we should not forget to continue these have conversations with our elected officials, our uh, the, fo the folks who basically have the keys to the kingdom, they're saying now it's an important thing to think about. Let's continue those conversations. Let, uh, let them just get shoved under the rug once everything kind of goes back to normal. You know, I think we could actually have a, another episode that focuses on telemedicine and telehealth. So, you know, perhaps uh, you can come back as, as a guest, Michael, because um, you're right. That is definitely a different sector that we've, we sort of mentioned right now, but we could go on and have a couple of episodes about it. Um, all the way from the executive that you mentioned, who now has the availability to to have sort of that time, and uh, you know, in their in their own, you know privacy of their own home or office, what have you. But we also can um, consider rural communities um, where you know there's there's yeah. not a lot of people in that community to provide that type of support. Um, or, you know, and again, a lot of my passion has been intersection of mental, mental health, mental wellness and health and the uh, Latino communities or immigrant communities. So there's so much that we can talk about at it, you know, and maybe, uh, Andrew, maybe we will have another episode and Michael will be, uh, a, uh, um, a consistent guest on our, on our podcast. So. Well, this is how I get, this is how I got this, is how I have a very interesting career <laughs> keep on saying yes. So of course I'll say yes. And so then, uh, you know, I'm not sure you, you get in the show notes, uh, you know, happy to share. I wrote a, an article for a scientific American exactly on this about, about behavioral health in rural America yes. and the, and, and really the issues with that, right? It's, it's, it is, there, there isn't enough providers, enough access. The stigma in rural America is Huge and in immigrant communities, as you mentioned, the stigma of uh, obtaining mental health services is gigantic, and um, you know. So you have these large swaths of rural America who you have to drive pretty far to find. Even if there is a therapist or anybody available, there's the distances are immense. Uh, the, the people don't want to move there, you know. Right? It's an aging population usually in rural America, and so the young people are leaving. So you have a aging. Uh, high, a disease burdened, isolated population that is just a petri dish for continuing continuing problems in, in behavioral health. So, yeah. So, so to our listeners, stay, stay tuned for a future episode where we'll feature Dr. Michael Consuelos again, and our, the conversation will turn to telehealth and telemedicine. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, real quick, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, an incredible <laughs> 90s movie earlier, uh, Groundhog Day. And so, um, yes. you know, Drew and our other co-host, Carrie, pick on me a lot. Um, I think I might get the dub name Gen X Raj because I am everything 90s. And uh, you had mentioned uh, in our corresponding email that you uh, <laughs> saw In Excess open for Adam Ant. That is incredible. Yes. Wow. So, uh, oh. Uh, 83, 84. Um, so don't, so don't do the math folks. And then hopefully my parents don't do the math and figure out what grade I was in when I went to this concert. So, um, whoops. So, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Whoops. 
So, uh, yeah. So I, you know, so yeah, I'm definitely a Gen Xer. <laughs> uh, I, you know, um, I was accused of wearing, uh, sort of sh- the sort of the flannel shirts, grunge, you know, in the nineties. I, uh, one, one great thing about enjoying music from that time is that when you do have kids, you get to influence that. So my son and I have seen Pearl Jam three times. Oh, man. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. So, and basically every time they come to Philadelphia, we go and, and we watch them. So it, so we, you know, so yes, so I'm totally a Gen Xer. I'm totally a, a movie like nerd eighties, nineties movies, you know, all the, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, people can stop listening on turn off and, you know, watch something more important, but absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it was a f- part of interesting formative years and it's interesting to look back when I watch some of the Mel Brooks movies and some of the other like uh, airplane yeah. and, you know, oh my goodness, you couldn't do that now, <laughs> you know? And it's interesting that back then that was, you know, very interesting and very funny. Now you're like, oh my goodness, that could not be done. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I'm, um, we're, I think uh, absolutely a Gen Xer, uh, and appreciate that. And, and how pop culture has evolved is, is very, very different. Well, yeah. I think, I think we're kindred spirits. Uh, I believe you probably went to, uh, I'm going to guess 1992 Lollapalooza. I, I was able to attend when they came, when it came to Raleigh and, uh, the headliner was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, followed by Ministry, yep. Ice Cube, Soundgarden, um, Pearl Jam, Lush. And it was just an awesome time. But Drew, you missed out, man. Yeah. Missed out on the, uh, you know, yeah, man. Jenna. <clears throat> so that's some of the good music was. That's real music. None of that sort of, uh, what is that called? That electronic, whatever <laughs> voice thing that they do now where everybody sounds the same. Jeez. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I saw, I saw, uh, Soundgarden. I saw, um, you know, like also like some really like screaming trees and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, like hot chili peppers, stone temple pilots. I, mean, I can go on and on and on, but I was also in the eighties where, you know, in excess was still like a big deal. I, I saw the police like three or four times. Um, but you know, back that, those are, those are the glory days of like huge rock concerts. I saw the Rolling Stones several times. Um, you know, to me, it's interesting now the way that music, you know, kind of totally aside, gentlemen, but the, the way that music now is consumed with streaming, you know, the physical copy for us was a very tangible, physical, looking through the liner notes and reading the words and consuming them in a stationary way. Like you would, it would be an experience, right? So you would sit there and put your headphones on and you would, you know, totally absorb the music. Now it's like this kind of like, you know, I don't know. It's not, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just a very different, different model. Well, if we ever get a chance to meet in person, we'll have to dust off some LPs and CDs and uh, relive our glory nineties. So uh, Drew, you can, you'll, you'll, we'll allow you to join us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm not that much younger than you are. So Michael, we're so glad to have this conversation with you. And thank you so no. much for joining us today. Uh, Drew and Roger, it was my pleasure. I, uh, again, I'm very passionate about this topic. And you know, it, I think it's, uh, you know, I really honestly, uh, at a personal level, uh, it, I support what you guys are doing and what your team is doing around this. And I also support folks in the work. Uh, you're doing very important work. And if I can be of any assistance, please reach out. So we will hold you to that. Now, Michael, we will have you on retainer as a, as a, uh, a guest that revolves through our podcast with so much. We could go everywhere, Michael. We could go uh, military. We go veteran. We can go, uh, health. We can go 90s (laughs) music. I mean, so we're going to hold you to that. That's not a problem. I enjoy this. 
And again, that was Michael Consuelos. <laughs> Dr. Michael J. Consuelos is the senior medical advisor at Neuroflow and serves as principal at MJC Solutions. You can follow him on Twitter at MJ Consuelos. Thanks for listening. And what a wonderful interview that was with Michael on this Memorial Day in 2020. As we conclude our episode, we wanted to take a moment to recognize those who have lost their lives in armed conflict, as well as the survivors and family members of loved ones who have served in the military. We also want to acknowledge that this episode touched on a number of topics related to mental health challenges that individuals and families may be experiencing now. If you or someone you know is currently experiencing emotional distress and could benefit from counseling and mental health support, we encourage you to reach out to a provider in your area. You may also consider reaching out to SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357, which is a free, confidential, 24-7 treatment and referral information service that's offered both in English and in Spanish for individuals and families who may be facing mental and or substance use challenges. Also, if you or someone you know has spoken of harming themselves or is in emotional distress, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Trained crisis workers are available to talk 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The call is confidential, um, and it will help connect you to the uh, Lifeline National Network. Thanks again so much for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful holiday and week ahead. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.